Reading from the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 17 through chapter 5, verse 2. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself, himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, as we come to your word, we ask that it will you will cause it to be uh, what you promise it is, living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. And we ask that you would uh, reach down into our hearts um, like do surgery on our hearts like a master surgeon. Uh, open up our hearts and reach down into the depths of who we are and apply the cross of Jesus Christ there. Father, I ask that we might be a people for whom the cross of Christ, his mercy, would be everything to us and would be the motivation for all that we do and would be the deepest definition of our identity. And that we might be a people who can say at the core of who we are, we are a people of Jesus and a people of his cross. And then make us a people who reflect that mercy in every word we speak and in every deed we do so that the world may see you in us. So grant us to hear with our minds and with our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, friends, um, would you please turn back to page seven? And then also you're going to need to look at eight, too, because the Ephesians reading spans both of those uh, 
pages. Um, we are back in Ephesians. Uh, we are going to be looking at the second half of that Ephesians reading. Now, remember, this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. Um, he is writing from uh, prison. He's under house arrest in Rome, and he's writing to a group of Christians around the city of Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus is in modern day Turkey. And he's, what he's doing in this section of Ephesians is he is coaching them on what it means to really follow Jesus. So he's described to them the, uh, the fundamental doctrine, what it is that Christians believe about who Jesus is and what he did and what it means to repent and follow him. And now he's getting into the details. This is what it looks like on the ground. These are the behavior changes that, that are made in your life when you become a follower of Jesus. In other words... He's describing the comprehensive moral transformation that Jesus wants to work in every single Christian and in every single church. Pause. I just used the word comprehensive moral transformation or the phrase, whatever. I would love to know what it is that comes to your mind when we say the word, when I say the word morality. What comes up for you? Um, I wish we could like, take a poll, but we're not going to do that. Um, my guess is that for some of us, immediately, it's a little bit of a negative thing, maybe a lot of a negative thing. So when people hear the word morality, sometimes, especially when churchy people, and clearly I'm a churchy person, when a churchy people start talking about morality, very often it, it brings up negative feelings. So, you know, guilt, oh dear, or fear, oh no, or questions like, are you going to ask me to repress something? For some, the word morality immediately brings up negative things. For others, it doesn't really bring up negative things. It just kind of brings up like little things. So um, it's maybe for you, morality, eh, it's not a bad word. It's just like, it like means don't do harm to people and be nice and little stuff like that. Now, I want to show you right now that for the Christian church, for the community of Jesus, for the family of Jesus, morality comprehensive moral transformation. It's not a negative thing. It's not a little thing. It's a giant thing. And it's a beautiful thing. Here's why. Let me give you just a little like big overview of comprehensive moral transformation and what we mean by that. So for the Christian church and for the Christian community, the vision for comprehensive moral transformation, it is, it's to love others like God has loved us. It's to be like God. It's to imitate God. Now, where do I get that from? Well, I get that from page eight, chapter five, verse one. Take a look at it. Paul writes, therefore, summing up his argument, he says, be imitators of God as beloved children. There it is. The church is the family of God's adopted children. That's what the church is. And when God adopts you into his family, you find yourself loved with a love that is transcendent and compelling and beautiful. And as we live under God's fatherly affection, that can't help but change us. And we start to reflect that love. We receive that love. And then we reflect that love more and more to each other within the family, within the church, but then also to people outside the family and outside the church. And this love, this compellingly, transcendently beautiful love that we receive and that we reflect, it's not little love. It's not like 
It's not fuzzy wuzzy love. I just said fuzzy wuzzy. It's not sentimental, is what I mean. It's love with teeth. Where do I get that from? Look at verse two of chapter five, page eight, verse two. Paul says, and walk in love. What does it mean to walk in love? Keep reading. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Now, look at that. Can you see how Jesus's love has teeth? You see, Christian love is not sentimental love. It's not like warm, affectionate feelings. That may be included, but, but you can have warm, affectionate feelings, and, and generally we call that liking somebody. But Christian love, the family of Jesus, is called to love people even that we don't like. And the reason we're called to love people that even we don't like is that Jesus's definition of love is when he gave all that he is for his enemies when he died upon the cross. When Jesus was dying on the cross, he gave himself up. He gave up his life so that his enemies, the very people who were pinning him to the cross, could be forgiven and then adopted into the family of God so that his enemies could become his brothers and his sisters. Friends, that is love with teeth. And it is to be the family trait of the people of God, the family trait of our church. And it's not a small thing. It's a big thing. And it's not a bad thing. It's a beautiful thing. And I could say it differently. God's beauty is displayed when God loves his enemies. When Jesus lays down his life for his enemies and therefore Christian comprehensive moral transformation is when that beauty, that love shines through every one of our actions. Not a small thing, not a bad thing. It's a big thing and it's a beautiful thing. Christian morality is God's beauty shining through all our actions. And Emmanuel, that's where God wants to take us. We get to imitate God. We get to reflect Jesus in everything we do. Now, that's a kind of like, big picture overview of what Christians mean by comprehensive moral transformation. And now I want to show you how the apostle Paul applies that to our lives in three ways. The beauty of Jesus Christ is to shine through our lives in the way we talk to each other, in the way we treat our enemies and in the way we spend our resources. Let me explain. First of all, Jesus's love is to shine through all our actions, particularly in the way we talk to each other. Now flip back to page seven and look at right in the middle of the reading, verse 25, Paul says, therefore, having put away falsehood, that means having stopped lying, let us each speak the truth with his neighbor for we are members of one another. Okay, pause there. That's straightforward, right? Don't lie. Say true things to each other. Okay, great. Verse 29, skip to verse 29. Paul says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only speak things that are good for building people up as fits the occasion so that your words may give grace to everyone who listens. Okay, now back up, think about what he just said. I, am I right? I think this should be pretty straightforward to us. Like, this is pretty conventional, isn't it? Um, we're supposed to learn this in kindergarten. Don't lie. Speak truth. 
don't tear down, use your words to build up. Like that is non-controversial, right? Except here's the thing. Friends, it seems to me uh, that certain Christians uh, and, and sometimes Christian leaders have more recently been acting like speaking in this way that Paul describes is like optional. It feels like, and you can you can see if you think I'm right, it feels like there's a bit of a disturbing trend in certain Christian circles for Christians to weaponize our words. I think maybe we feel threatened sometimes. And so we weaponize our words. And 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 it it, it seems like maybe that is starting to become normal sometimes. Maybe social media, stuff like that. I have heard Christians and sometimes Christian leaders um, say things publicly that do not seem to be connected with like evidence and factual truth. And sometimes they frame it as, as, as prophecy that's not tested. Uh, sometimes they frame it in different ways. But friends, that's not okay in the family of Jesus. We are only to speak things, say things, that we have a high degree of confidence is true. Um, other times, it seems like I hear Christians, sometimes Christian leaders, talking about things like racial justice in ways that are callous at best, and sometimes just, I can't see how that's not racist in some of the things that have been said. And once again, that's not okay in the family of Jesus, speaking like that. And don't forget the book of Ephesians, right? In, do you remember two chapters ago? In chapter two, um, Paul says that Jesus died on the cross to unite all tribes and all ethnicities into one family called the church. And therefore, if Jesus has done that, then, then he gives us the gift of speech so that we can build that family up, build up the church that's made up of all ethnicities and all, all people groups. Um, and we are not supposed to use our tongue ever to tear that down. And we need to remember that. Uh, other times I've seen, I've heard Christians say things that are actually true biblically, but, but sometimes we can speak without empathy. We can say true things without saying it with empathy. And sometimes it sounds like we're trying to win arguments rather than trying to win hearts. And once again, that's not okay in the family of Jesus. Now, I'm saying this because um, it, it, it seems to be a bit of a trend, and, and we must not imagine that this is normal for Christian life. It's not. This is not the way we act within the family of Jesus. And I pointed out, not so that we can look at somebody else and, and be superior, not so that we can look at somebody else and say, oh, I'm very glad that I don't talk like they do. Oh, they're terrible people and I'm wonderful. No, 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 no. Heavens, no. Lord, have mercy. No. But rather, we need to point this out so that we can fall on our knees here at Emmanuel Church, fall on our knees before Jesus and say, Jesus, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. And will you work in my life so that every word that comes out of my mouth is consecrated to you? Jesus, make me and make all of us together here at Emmanuel Manual truth tellers, people who love the truth, people who use our words to build up 
the people of Jesus and use our words to impart grace? And will you pour out your mercy so that our brothers and our sisters who have forgotten how to speak would be transformed and would be that the whole church and the whole movement of Jesus in this nation would be a people who speak words of mercy and grace and truth all the time. Now, I know this is heavy, um, but if you look back at Paul, he points out the impact of wicked words within the church. It does at least two things. It grieves God and it shatters community. First of all, wicked words grieve God. Take a look at verse 30. Verse 30 says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Now, do you see that phrase, don't grieve the Holy Spirit? Paul's quoting from the Old Testament, from Isaiah 63. And in Isaiah 63, Isaiah is talking about how God liberated Israel from enslavement. It's just a wonderful story. Um, God loves Israel and reaches down and liberates them from Egypt. And then God and Israel begin walking together in a close bonded relationship. However, if you know the story of the Old Testament, Israel at various points rejects God, runs out on the relationship. And when Israel rejects God, Isaiah 63 says that rejection grieves God, grieves the Holy Spirit. And what that means is that grieving the Holy Spirit is when God's people betray him or reject him or take his mercy for granted. It's the grief of personal betrayal. Now, keep that in your mind and bring, come back to Paul. And Paul's point here is that when my words, when Jim's words tear down another believer rather than build them up in grace, what I'm doing is I'm betraying the God who saved me and it grieves the heart of God. It's the grief of a personal betrayal against God. And it also shatters community. Look at verse 25. Do you see why we're not, we're supposed to speak the truth to each other? He gives a reason. We're supposed to speak the truth to each other in verse 25 because we are all of us members of each other. What does that mean? Well, it means this. If you're a Christian, then you are inextricably linked to Jesus because remember, Jesus died for you. God the Father has adopted you into his family. Adoptions are irreversible. You are linked by the Holy Spirit to God forever. But that also means you're linked to the rest of the family forever. You're linked to other Christians. And therefore, what I do impacts you. And what you do impacts me. And what we do as a church impacts the rest of the Christian community in this nation and around the world. Uh, what we do is inextricably linked to the rest of the body of Christ. Now, this is one of the reasons why individualism for all its many benefits uh, can also deceive us. What do I mean? Think with me here. It's easy for us to imagine a logic that goes maybe a little bit like this. Uh, my life, I'm an individual, my life, my body, my words, my choices, free speech, what I say is my business and, 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 and I should be able to say what I wanna say. Now, that line of logic may make sense for, for folks who don't belong to Jesus yet. But if you belong to Jesus, that, that doesn't work. 
when you belong to Jesus, Jesus calls you to use your words for the glory of God and for the building up of his people. That's what freedom in Christ means for our speech. And it also means that I and you, we are accountable to the whole church for our words. Um, this, is accountable. this is true because I'm accountable to Christ. You're accountable to Jesus. Our words, your words and my words as Christians will either build up the church or rip it apart. Um, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, he says, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. Now, Emmanuel, what I'm trying to do is I'm, I'm trying to help us all feel the weight of our words. Because for a Christian, words really matter. Remember the very beginning of the Bible? God created the world through his word. That's the first scene in the Bible. Later on, three chapters later, sin entered the world through wicked words. When the devil tempted Eve and said that God could not be trusted. That's chapter three of the Bible. Later on, God redeems the world when his word becomes flesh in Jesus Christ. That's the story of the Gospels. And if you belong to Jesus Christ, then at some point, God through God uh, called you to Christ through his word. And that's what happened when you first believed. And if you belong to Jesus, then for all eternity, you will praise God with your words. That is your eternal future. And right now, at the point of the story where we find ourselves now, Jesus wants all of us together to use our words to impart his grace to everyone we meet. And therefore, Emmanuel, we need to humble ourselves before the cross of Christ and ask our and ask Jesus, will you audit my words? Will you test my words? Are my words consecrated to you? We reflect Jesus through what we say. Number two, we get to reflect Jesus in the way we treat our enemies or how we deal with anger. Uh, look at verse 28. Uh, actually, verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. And then skip to verse 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Okay, pause. Think about anger for a second. Uh, anger is one of the devil's favorite doorways into our lives. Do you know that? So may maybe it works like this. Uh, imagine Jim is sitting here and I see something in the world uh, that, that's wrong. Uh, maybe... I hear Christian leaders, the Christian leaders I was just talking about, I hear Christian leaders saying something awful and I'm indignant. And, and at the beginning, maybe Jim's anger, maybe Jim's anger is righteous indignation because that's wrong. But, and maybe verse 26, I'm, I'm being angry, but I'm not sinning yet. But here's the trouble with anger. When Jim's angry, uh, when maybe somebody hurts me, maybe some something offends me, um, that evil hits my soul. And if I'm not very careful, and if I don't deal with it right away, that evil hits my soul and will replicate itself within my heart because my heart likes evil. Because 
I'm a fallen human being. And therefore, what started off maybe as appropriate anger can quickly twist my heart or my heart twists it into bitterness and wrath. And right then the devil has a foothold in my soul. And then if I do not deal with it, then that bitterness and that wrath matures into slander and malice. And if I'm not very careful, it will spew out of my mouth with the same kind of wicked speech that I was so indignant about a few minutes ago. And I'm a hypocrite. Can you see the trap? And it's important that we understand this trap on the one hand so that we can guard ourselves against it, but also, Emmanuel, don't miss this, also so that we can have compassion on those around us who fall into it. The very people who hurt us or offend us or the very people who say things that make us indignant, those people are falling into a trap that we can fall into too. And can we not have some compassion for them? So what do we do? Well, verse 32, take a look at it. It says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now keep your eyes on that verse um, because that verse gives us the destination where it is that God wants to take us. And it also gives us the path, how to get there. So the destination is beautiful. Be kind, be tenderhearted. It's the opposite of being callous. Don't ever be callous. A callous heart is a sinful one and forgive each other. That's where God wants to take us. That's the destination. How does Paul say that we get there? What's the path? Don't miss this. Do you want to know how to undermine bitterness in your heart? Do you want to know how to be freed from anger and from hatred? It's urgent. We'll look at verse 32. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Verse 32 tells us how to get there. We receive forgiveness from Jesus. And then we feed on that forgiveness moment by moment and breath by breath. Let me say it differently. Here at Emmanuel, we like to talk about reflecting the beauty of Jesus Christ. Why do we talk about reflecting? Why that verb? Well, think about the, think about the moon. The moon? Yeah, think about the moon. The moon does not create light, right? It, it, it's a mirror. It can, it can only reflect light, the sun's light. And in order to reflect the sun's light, it has to first, so to speak, face the sun. It, it has to receive the sun's light and then it can emit that same light to the earth. That's how the Christian life works. Your soul, my soul by itself, we are incapable of imitating God. Um, we are incapable of, of, of moving ourselves and getting ourselves to where God wants us to go. We can't imitate God any more than the moon can imitate the sun. But on the other hand, we were made to reflect God's love and grace. And the son of God became what we are, human, so that we might become what he is, the child of God. And Jesus died on the, upon the cross and then rose again so that he could forgive us right when we were his immoral enemies. Jesus died in our place and he gained amnesty for us right when you and I were spewing out toxic, wicked words or harboring them in our hearts. And when you face 
the son of God, just like the moon faces the sun in the sky. When you face the son of God high upon the cross, and then when you see him speaking mercy to you, speaking grace to you, speaking forgiveness to you, that power, that grace and mercy and forgiveness, it comes with power. It empowers the human heart to reflect that mercy, to reflect that grace, to reflect that forgiveness outward towards, towards those who have hurt you. Don't ever forget the power of the cross of Christ because the moment we forget the power of the cross of Christ, we are dead spiritually. How does this work practically? Well, think of it this way. Think about those moments when you're ticked off. You know, somebody says something, you know, somebody says something that you're like, that's not right. And you get really mad. You see, you see something on Twitter and you're like, aha. Okay. When you're really ticked off or when you're really hurt by somebody who's really betrayed you, here's what you do. You take that legitimate and maybe righteous anger and indignation and you rush it to Jesus Christ. Don't let it become an opportunity for the devil. Make sure it's an opportunity for Jesus to renew you with his mercy, to renew you with his compassion, to remind you how you have been a sinner and how you have grieved the heart of God many, many times. Take that anger to Jesus Christ and you will meet with the kind eyes and the kind mercies of Christ. And then when your heart warms under the white hot affection of God, your father, as your heart warms with the mercies of Jesus, then get up and look back at your opponent. Look, get up and look back at your enemy. And you will be able to look at them with the mercy you have just received from Jesus Christ. And in that moment, and maybe not before, open your mouth. And then out of your mouth will come words that build up and do not tear down. And the Lord Jesus may be so kind to you as to make you an instrument of mercy for your enemy so that your enemy and the people who have hurt you might come and kneel before the cross of Christ. And then, then you can kneel before Jesus with your enemies. Oh, Emmanuel, don't we need this? Don't we need a church? that kneels before the cross of Christ with the very people we find easiest to hate. Let's be that. I want to be that. Jesus, do whatever it takes to get us there. Because there's nothing more beautiful than that. And Jesus has been so kind as to bring us to himself. And he is so kind to say, go unto all nations and make disciples of all people, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And never is that seen more beautifully than when the church washes the feet of people whom we might naturally hate. And then we say, come, come with me to the cross of Christ. And you will meet, you will meet the one who can turn an enemy into the adopted child of God. So we get to reflect Jesus with our words. We get to reflect Jesus in how we treat our enemies. And, and lastly, we get to tr re uh, reflect God in, in how we use our resources. Look at verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. 
Hey, I think this should be straightforward, right? Uh, uh, Jesus gave all that he is for us. And when that really settles on your heart, you'll see that everything that you have belongs to him. You know, uh, if you're a Christian, your money is not yours. It belongs to Jesus. And that means on the one hand, of course, we, we want to run the other direction from every hint of shady financial dealing. We just run away from it. That's called stealing. We run away from it. But on the other hand, it also means that the money and the resources that we make like legitimately, part of the reason Jesus gives that to us is so that we can give it away. That means that giving is a happy part of a Christian's financial plan, always. And that's part of how we get to reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ through our resources. So let me ask you, are you reflecting Jesus with your giving? Now, don't give out of obligation and guilt. <laughs> Come on, we belong to the, to the one who gave his life for us. We are not driven by obligation and guilt. We're driven by the love that flows from the mercies of Jesus. Look at Jesus and let his mercy settle upon your soul and then you will wanna give. You'll wanna give, It'll, you, will, you will give and you will dance as you give away. So is giving part, has the Lord freed you financially from the burden of being frightened about money all the time? One of the ways the Lord breaks the power of fear about money and resources is by saying, hey, give some of it away. And when you give, say, Jesus, this is a sign that I'm trusting you with this thing that frightens me so much. The Lord wants to free you. And let me turn it around, though. For some of us, we are in need of receiving some financial help. And that's part of the family of Jesus, too. The family of Jesus helps each other. That's part of the family rules. And so if you're in a position where you need some help, um, don't be ashamed about that. Reach out to the church. It's our delight to give because we have been given so much by Jesus. It's just what we love to do. And then as soon as the Lord gives you enough, then run to give away to others in need. Friends, can you see the comprehensive moral transformation Jesus wants to work in us? Don't be settled with less. Don't settle for less than it. Jesus Christ wants to pour out his beauty into your soul. It flows from his cross. And then he wants his beauty to shine out in our words, in how we relate to our enemies, and how we use our resources. It's beautiful. It's big. Let's pursue it. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.